Much of what we do is often living by default. Even when life dishes up hardships, we just go through the motions. But what if we were to shake things up and become curious rebels? I'm Ali Hill and welcome to Standout Life, a podcast dedicated to exploring what does it take to live boldly amongst the busyness and the mess of our world. Yemi Penn is a delightful human being and I'm so excited to have had this conversation with Yemi. She's a global thought leader on igniting our rebellious curiosity at an individual team and organisational level. British-born, Nigerian, living in Australia, Yemi is an engineer by profession, which is absolutely fascinating, entrepreneur by passion, and she fuses analytical thinking with creativity as well as spirituality. Transformation is the theme of Yemi's focus, particularly transferring hard things that we navigate, potentially trauma, to becoming power. Within this conversation, we dive into how we can tap more into curiosity, what gets in the way of us being curious. There's an invitation to put ourselves in the way of discomfort and to unlock a rebellious heart. This conversation is a deep one and it's a beautiful one. So please soak up the wisdom and the invitation shared by Yemi Penn. Yemi, welcome. Thank you. I'm excited to be chatting with you. Likewise, likewise. I really am, especially having listened to a few other episodes and just knowing we're going to have this conversation. Always excited to see what we can co-create. We will co-create and it will be a conversation. I'm going to jump off with curiosity. It is a core thread that is woven throughout your work and it's woven throughout the conversations that you have with others. It's woven throughout what you invite people when you speak to them from stage. In your opinion, what gets in the way of us being more curious? It's funny because the minute you said that, I had a shame and imposter syndrome fraud type feeling and what came up for me was, Mm, Yami, you haven't always been curious. You were nervous as a kid to even ask questions. Even still today, there are some things that I will avoid being curious about, but it typically happens within a certain dynamic, which is family. And the family nucleus is, is usually where you can explore that curiosity or it can be completely diminished. Not for any other reason than sometimes it's just kind of how you grew up. So I guess I want to highlight that there, that I haven't always been able to live out my curiosity, even though I wanted it so much. The minute I found out that being curious doesn't mean what was the term? Curiosity killed the cat? Yeah, definitely didn't mean that I was not going to live anymore. Like, and it's taken me decades, really decades to pick that up. Like, it seems so simple. It seems like a story you could tell to a child, but really did. I think I would have been in my mid to late thirties before realizing that curiosity firstly doesn't mean I'm bad. It doesn't mean that I'm trying to be agitating for no reason, because that was another belief I had attached to it. And that it also gives me more insight and allows me to see the things that I typically wouldn't see if I wasn't curious. And so it's really, really important that I apply in in every aspect. And to be honest, the um, invitations for me to get curious are the times when I'm extremely uncomfortable with what's happening. So interesting, isn't it? All of those things, I think... uh true for plenty of people listening around we just get taught to particularly as kids sit down be quiet um, (laughs) be invited to to speak when you're kind of spoken to and as we get older we're meant to have the answers or it is just that 
it is what it is. What has learning about curiosity or or building that muscle, what has that taught you? Oh, it's taught me that there are so many things I don't know. And I was almost going to say we don't know and I got this voice that said, yeah, don't speak for everybody because there's still a whole group of humans in particular who believe they know everything. And I talk about this extensively in most of my keynotes that I don't know, I don't know everything. And even though that could trigger some fear in people, it actually brings about excitement for me because, you know, I'm kind of nosy. It's like, well, what else is there that I don't know? But I thought this was true and this was the whole truth, but it turns out there could be another version. And for me, that's where my creativity comes from. My creativity is extremely linked to curiosity. Like I, I've only just accepted, I think it was last week, how I'm living a really badass life. Like I'm living a life that was beyond what I thought could happen. And that categorically has come from being curious. So I've learned that creativity is very much linked to curiosity. What was that aha moment last week for you? Um, I just, I'm doing a PhD and uh, my ethics just got approved. Now, when I speak that out, it just feels really tame but it's a really big deal. My supervisors, professors, doctors, people have been in academia for a very long time. were congratulating me and pretty much throwing confetti via email. And for some weird reason, I only seem to see the impact I'm having when I hear other people talk about it. And so something told me to just stop and acknowledge that this is a big feat. And then the higher self of me, the higher part of me goes back and says, Remember that time when you went um, across the seas from the UK to Australia with a seven-year-old and a seven-month-old? Remember that time when you quit your job and you started a new consultancy and you were this little woman that you put yourself in as an identity and went to negotiate contracts with government? Remember that time when you opened up a gym and you were speaking to contractors and in your mind you were thinking, "Mm, who are you to be doing this? I mean, the list goes on. But it was from the ethics approval of my PhD because I don't think I'd stopped to congratulate myself that I'm now approaching two years into just an over three year PhD that I almost questioned um, a couple of years ago was too long to do. So interesting how we don't recognise those things in the moment Mm -hmm. when they happen. You've started to share just some of the other events that have happened in your life. Mm -hmm. As I understand, you are British born, Nigerian now living in Australia, what was it that brought you out with a seven-month-old and a seven-year-old to Australia? (laughs) I have two answers, Ali. (laughs) Well, I had two answers. Um, The answer I used to give was a new job, a new opportunity, but it was shame. I was ashamed of, of my personal life choices, experiences, events that had happened, and I guess subconsciously, but maybe consciously, decided to go to the other side of the world, literally, where very few people knew me or my name, and that I could just live in shame with less judgment from others or myself. And that that was that was the truth. But, you know, I was fortunate and definitely had the privilege of a good education, so I got a great job. And, you know, the theory, which is always interesting, whenever I find someone living in a different country to where they probably lived most of their life or were born, the first thing I say is, hmm, what were you running away from? I mean, usually they're running towards love, but there's usually something else. Um, for me, it was, it was the shame story of my personal circumstances. That 
and can come with some time to recognise what that is because uh, that first answer of a great job and, and new possibilities uh, is a palatable answer, right? Yes. It's, it's palatable for ourselves mm-hmm. and it's palatable for others. So thank you for sharing the other answer, which is um, really to move away, to explore what happens yes. when we move, though, as you know all too well, is we take ourselves with us. Yes, yes. <laughs> Was there a realisation when you landed on Australia that actually some of this shame and I guess the recognition of some of your your personal experiences Mm. and I know you talk very openly about experiencing trauma, um, trauma as a young child, was the realisation that actually some of this needs to be part of my story and be voiced as part of who I am? I want to say it was probably around 2018. It's a really great question, which is why I love amazing interviewers like you who can really get to the heart of things that I didn't even know. It had been 2018. My dad had passed away in June, and they say death has a way of cracking everything open and really was the catalyst for a level of curiosity and radical honesty that um, I didn't even know existed because, once again, at some sort of intellectual level, I know we're all going to die, but there's something we create as humans that's just, but not yet. It's just constantly not yet. Well, I'm not anyone I know. So when my dad passed away, it was, it was questions. I'd started writing a book maybe about half a year before he passed away. And I remember wanting to write that book because it felt cathartic and I wanted to leave a message for my kids in case I left way earlier than I wanted to, and I needed them to hear my story because on paper it was messy. It was really, really messy, and I needed them to hear, and, I'd, and I didn't want them to either think of me as a bad person, but I also wanted to give them some sort of roadmap in case they approach the same messiness in life and actually to let them know that they're full and they're whole, and even though I'm still trying to figure it out, I just wanted to document it. So I'd started writing it, but imposter syndrome had me thinking as an engineer, which is what you know I studied and came to Australia for, that I couldn't write, that writing wasn't my skill. And when my dad passed, I realized, oh, I think time is just this linear thing and that I've actually got control over it. So that was that was a big part to saying, OK, I'm ready to tell my story. And, and to be honest, that just started from my book, because I guess what surprised me is people wanted to read it. <laughs> and then they found connections. And I tell you, Ali, the connections that these people made were coming from people who did not look or sound or even have remotely similar experiences to me. And that was when I realized, oh, shoot, we are all connected. And the curiosity just just got deeper. What were some of the things that people were connecting with? (sighs) What was culture? There's a guy who I'm doing his course. I love his books. His name is Resma Manikem. And he refers to bodies, you know, because we talk about race, but he refers to bodies. And one thing that people connected with were bodies of culture. Um, and this is part of what my PhD is, is looking at cultural trauma. But what happened was cultures of bodies would come up to me and explain. So whether it was an Indian man who would say, there was something in your story that resonated, that parts of my story of when I went to boarding school in Nigeria, or my daughters who want to go into STEM. And then there'd be the white body, which is a white male, not so much middle-aged, younger kind of attaching to the business part of me of, oh, 
you're an engineer and you opened the gym and how did you do that? And, you know, they'd never say it, but how did you do that as a black body? Like you could just, there was this unspoken word of love and grace, but really curious and just really pleasant. And then you'd have the mother who would come and say, oh my gosh, I, I didn't know there was another way to be and do this because I, I can't remember if I put it in my book, but I explained that I have this contract I have with my kids. And every now and again, we check in and say, do we need to change the contract? Has anything changed? Because this is our agreement, not the one that we have seen told um, or hear other people or society say. And so just different, completely different threads that all of us from different walks of life, it was, it was, yeah, just, and still today is extremely fascinating to experience. Your book that you authored is titled, did you get the memo? Because I fucking didn't. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Which is a brilliant title (laughs) of a book. And I can, like, I'm already, I know listeners will be going, I need the answer (laughs) to that question. (laughs) You're going to find out. (laughs) But yeah, it started off with, where's the memo? Because no, not nobody, maybe I was in a different kind of chamber, not even an echo chamber, but it didn't think, it didn't feel like anybody was talking about the messiness of life or just the opportunities in life. But when I say that, I mean people who had not made it yet, because we have this tendency to go straight to the person who's made it. And Oprah, who I love dearly, you know, there comes a time, you know, there was a time where we could have absolutely related to her, had something similar. I wanted to tell stories when I was as close to the experiences as possible and hadn't left it because I'd be a completely different person. And I just thought, well, I'm going to do it. And I'm sure they're out there. Um, but in my communities, I, I definitely wanted to do that. Write a memo. Did you find the memo? Um, still looking. <laughs> still looking. I found so I found out that there is no memo, um, but a lot of people know the contents of a memo and we're just too fractured to put it together. And who knows, that might be another book at some point. But I actually think collectively we all do have the memo. It's just um, we, we, can't, we can't seem to get our shit together to share it with each other. The curiosity and the invitation of the conversation around it sounds like that was something really, really, really key. You mentioned before you are a mechanical engineer, uh, was was part of your training, and they are professional problem solvers in so many ways when you go into engineering. Yeah. You've also done work as an entrepreneur. You've opened a gym. You've opened a cafe. Mm. Again, deep in the mess of problem solving. Mm. What, what pulled you firstly into mechanical engineering and then into entrepreneurship? You know what, Ali? I'm in this kind of world of spirituality and then living everyday life, whatever the opposite is. Because when I get questions like that, I want to give an answer that just sounds intellectual. But the truth of the matter is I just had a feeling that I should go into a field of work that suggested me as a woman I couldn't be part of. And the reason why I hesitate to say this is because I didn't have the language or I felt I didn't have the language back then. Mm. I feel most of my intuitive nature has come about being in Australia. But when I have these kind of dialogues, something tells me, no, baby girl, you've been having this run way back. You've just forgotten, which is why I love the idea of remembrance, which is a big part of my personal development. So I had a feeling back then that I wanted to go into a field where I was told I would be a stark minority. And maybe that's the stubborn part of me. And it wasn't, it was actually quite mild. I just thought, okay, I'll give it a go. This was before Hidden Figures came out, where I can't remember the lady's name, I've been Katherine Johnson, who goes into the court to, to convince a judge to let her 
um, attend night school where I don't think there were many women and definitely not many women of color. And I loved how she broke that boundary. There was something in that for me. I mean, I remember my first lecture, 100 people, three women. And it was stark, but I just thought, huh, interesting. Just be part of it. There was no, I, I wasn't part of the fanfare. I was just like, I'm going to give this a go. Um, so that was that was that interest. But I actually just love the idea of transformation. I love that you can think about something and then create it. It was just really, it was something I was extremely excited about. And then the entrepreneurship was the same. I found myself, especially when I got to Australia, even though I'd kind of been quite entrepreneurial, but on smaller scales in the UK, was, oh, there's this problem. How come no one's doing this? How come no one's doing that? Why can't I see women doing that? How can I? And I started to sound like a right nagging individual to myself. <laughs> I love it. There's a part of me goes nag away. <laughs> it was like, why isn't this happening? Why isn't that happening? Why? And then I would have probably got another feeling saying, well, who do you think's coming to save you? Who is it you're waiting for to do it? And that was where the entrepreneurial kind of like really grew. And to be honest, that got messy as well, because it turns out I obviously picked out so many problems that I thought I needed to be the one to solve all of it. So there are many things I've done that haven't necessarily been successful or I just really didn't take too far because now I am a lot more focused on any entrepreneurial endeavors I take and, and really decided to put all of them on, on halt while I do my PhD because now I want to focus on, on legacy work. Acknowledging some entrepreneurial things might contribute to that, but it just needs to go towards my legacy now. Is there a key lesson that you took away from whether it's some of those failures or just key decisions, particularly as an entrepreneur? Um, yeah, there is. I just don't think I've ever put the words together. So it might come out a little bit messy as I say this. Messy seems to be a key word for me in this <laughs> conversation. Um, a key message I took was not to tie my identity to the amount of entrepreneurial pursuits or businesses I have. I only bought a cafe when I did because I had just sold my gym and I was fearful that the success I'd had in the gym I could not replicate and therefore it was important I create something else um, I just needed to pause I needed to pause I mean something I've learned from some really great leaders was is now this idea of having an exit strategy for every endeavor I have. So the biggest lesson is not to tie your identity to your businesses or entrepreneurial pursuits. Well, not, not big parts of it anyway. It's a beautiful message and one I would definitely, um, you know, take on board in terms of business, what we do, but, you know, who we are can be separate to that. You said something before about the rememberings. My curiosity is piqued by that. And certainly where you've, you've talked a little bit about, and, and certainly in this conversation, I can see you talking about the kind of spiritual side of, and giving voice to that. Are you able to share with me rememberings? Mm -hmm. What are they? Uh, what encouragement you might have for people listening? Part of the gift and the curse, I think, of the human species is this desire to make meaning and sense of everything. And I'm getting to a part now where the cerebral part of me wants to know everything, but there's a part of me that needs to trust. I don't even know. I heard somebody else. I mean, I don't even know how my iPhone 15 works. I, I, I really don't. <laughs> I'm a mechanical engineer. I get on a plane and I'm like, how is this plane staying up? 
So there are many things I don't know. But I think what happens is the minute something happens or we get this intuitive feeling, say we think about someone, or you could say, Yemi, I was thinking about you the other day, and I say exactly the same day I was thinking about you. Because we don't understand it, because we've had so many people suggest, oh, that's airy-fairy, we dismiss it as coincidence. And so for me, remembering is someone who says, I've been here before, I've known this feeling before in some capacity. It doesn't feel like it was in the years in which I've been alive on this earth, but I just have this feeling. That's one part of remembering. You know, for me, what I'm really saying is remembering who we really are and our true essence. Um, For me, it comes about when I've engaged in plant medicine. You know, I was in Costa Rica earlier this year. What month are we in? October. Yeah, it was in June. And even though I'd done it before, I hadn't done it in such a big mass um, ceremony. I did it with my fiance. It, you know, there was there was this feeling and and I'm someone who's never done drugs, like never even smoked cannabis. And I lived in London. I've had multiple, you know, friends and partners who did it. So I really, I'm not a control freak, but I like to control my body. It's the same reason why I don't drink that much alcohol um, for no other reason than I just like to be aware of my senses. So this was always going to be a big deal for me to deviate. And in every time I've had a ceremony with plant medicine, it has been a remembering of something, a feeling. And you know when you just feel so sure, but you cannot explain why, that's that's what it is. It's remembering our true essence. And as someone who sits in, in the science, technology, engineering and math field, that's that just doesn't feel enough. It's another reason why I'm doing a PhD without a scientific lens, with an art-based lens, because there are more ways to express our lived experience than collecting hard data and measuring and microscope. There is so much more complexity to human life and remembering is just trusting that your body, your soul, your spirit will guide you there. There are plenty of scientists who talk about finding religion Mm. in a Petri dish uh, for the answers we we don't know. Yes. When you're speaking on stage, you invite people to ignite their own rebellious curiosity. Mm. If someone's listening and particularly, thank you, you described that remembering so beautifully and there's a part of me going, I I know those moments, even if I can't think of what they are right now, I've had those moments and we desire those moments. If someone was to go, that sense of curiosity to sit back and ask the question but also that rebellious nature, that it is a rebellious act at times to sit in that Where might you encourage someone to start to ignite their own rebellious curiosity? I mean, I usually have a couple of steps for this, but if there was one I was going to point out, it'd be they're going to need to find their spark. To to ignite it, there needs to be some sort of spark. And my offering is that the way life has gone over the past couple of years in particular, life has lifed a lot of us, continues to life us um, in, in this current period. Um, with everything going on in the world. So what's going to happen is it's going to potentially dim. We're not going to be able to find that spark. But to find that spark, you probably need to sit in the unknown and discomfort for longer than you normally will. That in itself is rebellious. You know, I've started doing intermittent fasting. I kind of, my last meal is just before 3 p.m., I mean, I really had a theory that if I didn't eat after 3 p.m., I literally was going to die. I was so sure. And so after the first two days and I thought, oh, my gosh, I feel all right. But I say that because between three and bedtime, 
I have no choice, Ali, but to sit with myself and discomfort because food I use for pleasure, food I use for grief. So if any feeling came up between that time and we know feelings of discomfort come up most days, whether it's a disagreement with a partner or a child or uncertainty, anxiety, depression, whatever it is, it comes up. But what happens is we tend to get busy. And so I found out a couple of months ago that it looks like I'd replaced my planning of my meals and eating with social media. And so what happens is I keep on trying to find something. So part of being rebelliously curious is to find your spark. You find your spark by sitting in those windows of discomfort slightly longer than normal. And then I say pretty quickly, you have to be radically honest with the questions you ask yourself. What is it that's coming up for me? What's coming up? Why am I so uncomfortable before I reach for something? Yesterday, I had one of the most uncomfortable evenings of my life. (laughs) I had to cancel a few meetings today just so that I could tell my body she's not under attack. I had to soothe my nervous system. And even though it was about 7, 8 p.m., I knew I was looking at the food in the fridge and I just opened, I stared, just stared at it and just said, what is it? What is it you are trying to now numb with food? And it's the fact that I can't control it. I can't take away the pain from my son, that my son's dad might think I'm trying to change something because he was he was here from the States. And I'm quite open about how we consciously co-parent. It just allowed me to say all those things. And that's basically the equivalent of what the food would do. So sit with the discomfort, ask the questions and then be radically honest. If you could just get to that step you kind of give it a name. I mean, there's so much other work to do, but what that does is it at least shows it, you know, Chimamanda Adichie, who you know, did a great TED talk, The Danger of the Single Story, says the reason why, because we have so many causes, but we name things so that we can change them. You know, language is a big part of, of how we relate to each other. We need to name it. So to be rebelliously curious, it's to find your spark. You do that by sitting in the discomfort, you know, some people might say, but how do I know? And if you don't know, your body will tell you. My rotator cuff tells me when something's up. I have an injury from when I gave birth. That it, tends, it should only hurt when I'm in the gym. But when it happens and I haven't touched the gym, I'm like, uh-oh. It's the weakest spot of your body. So that means some stress hormones has gone through what's going up. So worst case scenario, if you can't go through the cerebral part, your body will tell you. That flare-up that happened to your ankle, your eye twitching, the spots you've got on your back get curious. Radically honest. I'm really personally looking at our relationship of uncertainty. Like how do we feel about uncertainty or that that kind of discomfort? And for some people, even just that word alone feels like it's debilitating. I don't want to know. I need to control. I need to know. I need to have a sense of certainty. And for others, it is pure blissful opportunity because now anything's possible. What helps us go from, and I love that, you know, put all of the, whether it's social media, whether it's food, like what's those kind of numbings and be really honest with yourself. But for you in those moments, like when you think about your own relationship with uncertainty right now, and obviously it changes throughout our life, it changes throughout the context in front of us. But what helps you shift from uncertainty, feeling like it's an overwhelming, debilitating experience to being able to go maybe there's an opportunity here yeah I feel like I go through a process but probably never written it down I mean I I I trained in EFT emotional 
is it freedom technique or tapping, where I tend to tap parts of my body. And I do that for me personally. This is when there's uncertainty. So I, I experience chronic fear, major uncertainty when I'm on an airplane and there's turbulence. So typically what I would do is tap myself because what I'm doing is just reminding myself that I'm here and I'm in my body because I notice that my body can shift and whether that's dimensional, I don't know, but it just feels like my body's about to vibrate out of my skin. So I do that just to pause. The next thing I do is, and my brain can work really quick, am I unsafe? Is the discomfort I'm feeling unsafe or is it discomfort? Your brain will do a number on you because my brain on a plane will tell me I'm unsafe. I've already created a <laughs> catastrophe. I've seen the headlines. So literally, I just have dialogue and come back to the now. And that's why I tap myself to bring myself. The minute I find out, and I promise you, nine times out of 10, it's discomfort as opposed to actually being unsafe, i.e. Um, it's not a tsunami. It's not you know someone holding a gun. Like I mean, if we go to the most drastic forms, mm. um, it's actually discomfort. I'm not unsafe. What that allows me to do is just start to get a sense of control back in the situation. I can't control whatever it is that I believe has triggered the uncertainty. And then the minute I do that, I then start to think of an alternative outcome I want. Like I know that my brain's cerebral, like I don't want anyone to fool me. Like my fiance, who I love dearly, he's from North England and he's come from that background where it's everything will be all right. Well, what can you do? And I'm like, yeah. Stop saying that. Um, I don't do well. Isn't it a cup of tea? Yeah, it is a cup that, of tea. That will just solve everything in North England. That's it. Um, I don't do well with that. I just like, huh. So I don't do well with that. For me, I need to go through the cerebral process of what I can control. And when I do that, I start to just create other things. But honestly, Ali, the only reason why I know that I can deal with uncertainty slightly better than what well, a lot better than I did in the past is because I'm living my life genuinely to the fullest that I can with the capacity that I have. I've just had what feels like a three hour nap before we came in on that. That that is by design that I have that choice to be able to sleep in the bed and I'm nothing shy of 41 years old when I was told retirement and the ability to do that midweek would be when I retire as opposed to in a nine to five. That's not lost on me. So I, I make sure that I've, I create the experiences and what I want. So it allows me to, to manage things differently. But also that feels like a rebellious yes. choice and it is. as well. It is because it's oh. it's against the norm and people might say, but Yemi, could everybody do that? No, they couldn't, maybe because they don't want to. But if someone did a survey, you'd probably find a real chunky, healthy proportion that people are doing stuff they don't want to do. What's the choice? Mm-hmm. What can you sit in that? One of the things that can come up in the doing things I don't want to do is self-doubt. Mm. Uh, maybe I'm not good enough. Maybe I can't do it not ready yet, I don't have the skills, I don't have the capability. And I think part of the call to rebellious curiosity is to question that Mm. um, and to shift from that self-doubt to self-belief. And nothing needs to change outside, but but it can be an incredibly powerful shift. How might someone make that shift or at least kind of even recognise the voice of doubt when it turns up? Yeah, I think it's cancelling the noise. Australia is the gift. This land currently in Camarago land is the gift that keeps giving because it was it was space for me to have less noise than I had before. 
less noise by way of family and friends, opinions, thoughts. You know, I constantly would go and say, do you think this is a good idea or this happened? And so coming to Australia, I was able to just reduce that noise and I was able to hear what it was. And I found out very quickly that I had a belief that as a single parent, I couldn't live an abundant, wealthy, flexible life. But I was only able to find out that was a belief running my script when there was no noise, when I didn't try to fill every gap with something else to do, even though I did. I think part of my initial business um, entrepreneurs was because I was trying to prove my worth. I was trying to prove oh, this single mum from South London um, can do OK. She didn't fuck up that badly. You know, there's still probably remnants of that. Um, so I think a big thing people can do is just once again, just pause and see, well, where does that come from? Why do I feel that? When you're telling a friend, oh, I felt this, I felt nervous, just ask yourself why. I used to feel nervous going on stage because the desire for everybody to like me was strong. Once again, I just sit with the stats of the world. Yes, it's possible for everybody to like me, but what is the likelihood of that? You know, this is where radical honesty comes in. So it's just you know, it feels repetitive, but it's the same thing. And and the beliefs, I mean, this is a big part of my keynote and one of the second stages of being Ignite and Rebellious Curiosity is, once again, and maybe this is the engineer in me, but I share one way through liminal thinking of how some of our beliefs are built. And most of the time it comes from my experience, but we even narrow it down. And usually I try to help people, especially when doing workshops, is to find that link between the experience and the belief. Once they know how that got built up, they are empowered to figure out how to either, you know, deconstruct it or create new ones. The belief I had to, I really kind of got invited to get curious about was, what if as a single mum I can bring in the income of a two household, you know, working parents or whatever? What if I could bring in more? Like, what would that, who would I need to be to make that belief happen? I like got really jazzy and creative with it. And then going back to how beliefs are built, I started to put myself in experiences that would allow me to have that audacity to, yeah, to bring in an income that was more than what I believed one person could bring. The invitation of curiosity that turns into creativity. Yeah. What if? What if? What if? How do we know what we believe? Oh, you'd, you'd hear yourself fighting reverently for something. You'd see yourself frothing at the mouth. <laughs> about something like honestly that that would be it. the next minute you find yourself oh, so angry so it doesn't mean it's right or wrong it just means you have a certain belief on how something should be that's how you would know the other thing is when you say I can't I find the words can't and never are your they are your greatest friends for personal development I can't do that it's a belief yes I'm sure you can go and tell me everything that's happened and it could have happened a hundred a thousand times but I would probably debate with you to the end of time that that is not everything. Because part of the invitation to deconstruct and beliefs is to accept we do not have a full hold on reality, but we have a full hold on our experiences of reality. And so, yeah, that would, that would be my, my invitation. Curiosity is contagious. That sense of connecting to other people that sometimes can pull us out of our own way, mm. whether it's self-doubt. And even rebellious acts, hearing them from you um, becomes really encouraging for others. The connections that we have with other people is a really big part that we play in living, I think, a a really bold life, particularly Mm. when it's messy and it's busy and we've got so much on our plate. Mm. 
And yet sometimes it can be hard to discern who are the right people to have in our community yeah. and who might might have been right for a period of time but maybe aren't serving us now. What are some of the ways that you've navigated those connections within your own community, uh, whether it is to help foster that rebellious curiosity? And what have you learned about how important it is to, to connect with others? Connection is really big for me. I'm sure it's big for a number of people. When I look at my boy who turned 10, his social connections are so important to me. Um, and it was a big part of the discomfort, the uncomfortable conversation we were having yesterday because I, I do I do place a lot of emphasis on it. But you mentioned something which is quite interesting, which is that, you know, sometimes those connections are lost people. You know, we've heard it sometimes in our life, you know, for a season. How I invite them is by being. I made 2023 the year and to be honest it's now going to be the decade of being you know we always feel we need to do one of my sisters I remember one day said so Yemi what do you do now like how are you doing this because I've challenged a status quo that I needed to work a certain way to provide or to contribute to the world and here I am doing something I don't know different from what maybe she saw me set out to do so I just be I show, I just show up. I give this offering of there being another way to operate. That's how I do it. Because I find that trying to tell people, especially if they haven't asked what to do, the results are never long lasting because I'm saying it from my vantage point. Um, it also means that you watch loved ones make decisions that you may do differently or you might have insight into. And I'm beginning to understand this idea that People need to experience their own thing. So what I focus on is, and it's another reason why, you know, I've taken a break off social media for the week, but when I'm on there, it's to share as much as possible of how I'm being. Even my keynotes within the first five minutes, I'm telling the audience who I am, not necessarily what I do. And the minute I do that, I'm actually already offering them a way of being rebelliously curious. And, and that's, that's what I find happens when I have conversations afterwards. So that, that would be how I do it, by just being. It's such a powerful question to sit in of who do I need to be? Mm. Who do I need to be in this moment, in this yeah. day? Yeah. Um, and there's a rebellion in that and the rebellion of having a three-hour sleep or rest before we dive into this conversation yes. uh, is such a powerful connection and conversation you've talked about your studying your PhD two years into a three-year process are you happy to share with us what you're studying and uh, you mentioned before about the power of legacy yeah. Um, yeah what you're diving into with that study so I always knew I wanted to find out is there a way for us to transform trauma because trauma is defined as a distressing or disturbing event the stats in Australia I think at one point said 67% of adults have experienced a traumatic event, and then it said 70, pretty confident it's more, but for the sake of collecting data, that's what it might come up with. And with that in mind, and having worked with a few psychologists, therapists in the field, there aren't enough, um, firstly, there aren't enough of them to be able to cater for those who might need that support. Also, there's always the paywall when it comes to getting, you know, that kind of support. 
especially with more vulnerable groups. I was just really intrigued to find out, is there something I can contribute to this um, body of work that puts the power back in those who have experienced trauma for them to maybe go on their own journey? And I know we've got lots of different things, but I really wanted to pull a framework together. And after the first year of research, obviously, it's time to refine it. And so now the primary research questions I'm answering is, how can we transform cultural trauma through the process of making a documentary using a decolonizing lens? I always knew I wanted to find an alternative perspective on trauma, like, you know, being of Nigerian heritage, you know, my mum isn't the most tactile or physically like hugs or even saying I love you is not her thing, but she will ride for you to the ends of the earth and she will always mm. be there for you. And I completely understand different generations. You know, she sees it as actions more than words, which I completely get to a certain extent. But when I gave birth to my daughter and my son, she did this thing, this tradition that, you know, I definitely know my grandmother did and something I'd want to do for my kids. While I'm showering, she comes in and she massages me. She gets a hot towel and she massages my back, my neck, my stomach to just give love to my uterus, like extremely loving act. They do the same to the babies. And she said, you know that giving birth is traumatic. You know, we, I wasn't using vocabulary 16 years ago. My daughter's 16. I wasn't using terminology of trauma. I didn't even know what that meant. She said both for the kid and the parent. And, you know, as I've grown older now doing this research, quite interesting that different cultures have different views. So there are some things, you know, I wasn't aware. I didn't acknowledge the traumatic event I experienced as a child until I heard, this is in my TEDx talk, until I heard a 40-something-year-old man talking about an incident at school where someone, you know, smacked the goldfish bowl out of his hand and sadly his goldfish died. And the tears I cried for that man that I've never cried for me was really interesting, really interesting. Something I probably still need to explore. So I'm really intrigued as to how the rest of the world, I just want a different view from the pathologizing way of looking at trauma, from what typically tends to be the single narrative voice. And so at first it was non-Western views. And then it went to post-colonial views. But to say post-colonial suggests that we're not still adopting some of the methodologies. And so it was a case of what would a decolonizing view. And for me, there are a few modes. But the biggest one is I want to make sure that there's <laughs> this is difficult, but that the power disparity between me as the researcher and those who are going to come and share their stories of transforming trauma is as little as possible meaning that this isn't just me coming to take their stories, but giving them the opportunity to tell the stories they want to tell. They get to choose the music, because I also know that having made documentaries before, the music you play attached to someone's telling of the story really, really alters the movement. I mean, wow, the mm-hmm. way we can move. I mean, we know music is powerful, but you add music to someone telling a story, it will make you go and act in a certain way. So really want to give them that that input. Yeah. And look, I've been told that your PhD is the worst bit of research you'll ever do. And I know that sounds a bit harsh, but it's not far off the truth because I'm already interested in finding out how I can use AI to help fast track some of our transformative um, transforming some of our, our most traumatic experiences. So, yes, lots. Powerful work. As you say, those statistics are probably undercooked and... I remember hearing this saying that, you know, silence is violence, particularly when it comes to uh, trauma and those experiences. So finding pathways that open up and invite people into uh, those stories um, 
but it sounds like you're also keeping front of mind power, which is a really important piece of the puzzle. It's not just the story itself. You are also going to be launching a podcast. Yes. For those that might be interested in exploring a little bit more about that, can you share with us the podcast uh, and what you'll be sharing on that podcast? Yeah, so it's already launched. It's just the fact that it's getting so busy. It's been a lot of soliloquies at the moment, but really good. And I keep them really short because the work work is, it can be seen as heavy and it's something that our nervous system hasn't been used to. It's called decolonizing trauma. I usually like to go back to the source before looking for solutions. It's like, can we look at the problem differently? If we looked at the problem differently, will it make us more creative about how we can solve it? And I'm just trying to change the way we look at things. And you know, decolonization, decolonizing post-colonial can have a tendency to split people into camps. And my first point of call there is, let's not do that. Let's sit in the discomfort a bit longer and just see. You know, the whole point of decolonizing is to say, let's give a different narrative. You know, the episode that I will be releasing in maybe a week might be yeah, in a couple of days from from when we're recording this is about sexual liberation. Um, oh, I would have never said that in the previous thing. Like it doesn't it doesn't always have to be a particular event. You know, I'm also interested in in the cultural events. I've got a 16 year old and I knew I needed to be equipped to have conversations about understanding our own sexual evolution that goes beyond this carnal kind of, oh, it's got to be you and a partner, but understanding yourself. Um, there's there's trauma attached to it. Forget, you know, an event that may have happened, which is extremely valid. But even if you didn't have a traumatic event happen to you, it's the fact that I still think there's something around the air. And so I have the conversation of what would it look like to decolonize how I look at myself um, to be sexually liberated. So it's it's many different topics, but it's just giving it a completely different perspective from the one narrative. Fascinating. We'll put all the links uh, so that people can follow. And I have a 16 year old as well, so I will be listening uh, to that. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so important. That invitation to really ignite that rebellious curiosity, to sit in curiosity, mm. to put ourselves in the way of discomfort and sit in that and be ruthlessly honest with ourselves mm. is so powerful. The rebellious act around choice and mm. where we can put ourselves and our own energy so that we can keep turning up to what matters uh, are some of the key things I'm going to take from this conversation, Yemi. Mm. I want to come with one final question for you. Yeah. The name of this podcast is called Standout Life. When you hear that term, What does it mean to you to live a standout life? (laughs) So boring, my response, but to live a free life, as free a life as possible. A standout life is a free one, which is littered with choice, choice to be happy, choice to give, choice to grow. That's, That's what comes for me. If you've enjoyed this conversation then let's keep the conversation going the main place that i hang out is on instagram at ali hill a-l-i-h-i-l-l one of the ways you can continue to support me and the team behind the podcast is if you could take two minutes just to rate and review standout life podcast whatever platform you are listening to you can also subscribe to the podcast so you'll be notified when new episodes come out and if this conversation is one that you know that someone in your world would get huge amount of value out of then please share share it with them or maybe share it on your socials. Once again, thanks so much for tuning in for your ongoing support 
and for joining me in exploring what does it really take. As always, this is Standout Life Podcast and I'm Ali Hill. 